Amen. AJ is going to be bringing the word to us this morning, and I'm so thankful for you, brother. It's uh, been a crazy week, and I told him yesterday, I said, I can't tell you how encouraged I am you're preaching, because I don't know that I can handle it. <laughs> so bring the word to us, brother, and you may be seated and take your Bibles out and turn to Philippians chapter 4, and AJ will bring us God's word. Thank, Thank you. you. So as many of you know, I don't know how many of you I got to share the whole process with when I went before Presbytery to get licensed in the PCA, but I was really nervous up until about the Monday or Tuesday before the exam, right? And then you have one of those moments with the Lord in prayer, and this is what God said. He said, AJ, your favorite thing to do is talk about me. How is this any different? And like most conversations that I have with God, I went, you got a good point. <laughs> so um, I was excited going before Presbytery. Uh, even though there were nerves still, I w- there, was a, there was a sense of excitement. So I'm excited to bring you the Word of God this morning. When, when Patrick sat down with our regular Tuesday meeting a couple weeks ago, he's such a good boss because he's like, what can I do for you right before I leave on vacation? And I just looked at Patrick and I said, Patrick, the question is not what you can do for me. It is what can I do for you? I don't know if you know this, but I am licensed to preach within the Presbyterian Church of America. <laughs> and he said, would you take it? And I said, absolutely. Let me do that for you. We're having a you know, party this weekend at Yak. I got time to prepare a message. So we're going to be on page 982 in your pew Bible. Um, if you're following along with us, we're in Philippians 4, um, 10 through 23. So follow along with me, if you would. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrance offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those in, of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, as we close the page on this book of the Bible, may we be reminded of the joy that you seek to give us. May we be reminded that being content in you is not some static place of where we sit, but it is a longing and desiring, a yearning to seek you and know you. And Lord, even though we close this chapter of this book for this time, 
as we move forward in your word. Lord, may we see you there. May we be reminded of the grace that you bestow upon us, the joy that you freely give to us. And may we be reminded of your son. May we love your son. May we desire to be with your son. And Lord, may that guide our actions in your son's name, we pray. Amen. Have you ever sat with somebody knowing it would be the last time you sat with them? It's your last day at work, you're about to uproot your family and move cross country, and you're leaving your cubicle with your box of supplies for the last time, knowing this will be the last time you say goodbye to your office mates. I remember the last day of high school, sitting around at the lunch table, the bell rings, and none of us moved. We just all sat around looking at each other, like lost puppies knowing that this would be the last time that this happened. You're in the hospital room, you're in the nursing home. They won't make it through the night. You know it, they know it. And you just hold their hand because what has been said has been said, yet you wish you could say so much more. As I read through the letter of Paul to the Philippians this week, what struck me most was the love that Paul had for this church, for this group of people, and the pains, and at one point he refers to tears that must have washed themselves over the original letter as he um, dictated the note, or even maybe wrote the note to this people, knowing this might be the last letter they might ever receive from him. And while not tangibly with them, he was united to them in spirit. Notice how he addresses the Philippians, the love for them. He begins the letter, right? All the way back in chapter one with thanksgiving. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Soon after that in chapter one, he says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. And then he takes the time, right? We've We've touched on it the last couple of months to fill them in on what's happened to this point, points them to Jesus, encourages his children in the faith as their spiritual father, reminds them to rejoice. And then to me, the most striking, the most personal, the most touching moment of the text takes place in chapter four, verse one, where he says, therefore, my brother, whom I love and long for. And you could have stopped there, right? You could have stopped there on, on who I love and long for. That's, that's affection, right? But then he adds this, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The whole letter is a letter of love. And it's a letter that points them to joy. We spent much of time, much time on this last week as we looked at anxiety and how it deals with joy. And here we see the tangible reasons of why Paul is joyful, which leads me to my first point in today's sermon. I know some of you are confused. There's only two points. As a Presbyterian, you're supposed to have three, but we're going to stick with two today, okay? And that is content in joy. Verse 10 begins, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were not indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We are reminded in this section of joy here. We're reminded in this section of joy at the beginning of the section. But we have to ask, is Paul scolding the Philippians as he says they revived their concern for him? And the answer is no, right? So let me give you kind of a fill-in background of the history, just in case you missed some of the on previous weeks, when Paul came to Philippi in Macedonia, there were no other Christians there on his first missionary journey. He's preaching out of the Old Testament and linking it to the works of Christ. And doing so, he soon found himself with a handful of believers around him. God used Paul in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit to bring faith in Jesus in Philippi. The Philippians loved Paul as children love a father because he was for very you know, name their spiritual father. So naturally, when Paul left to go preach in other cities, they inquired about how he was doing. And when word came back that he was in financial need, they took up an offering and sent it to him. Later, when they heard he was in need again, they continued to do so and did it again. Soon after his trip to Berea and Athens, the Philippians must have lost, lost touch with Paul. If you know this, I think most of you know this, there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't Twitter. They couldn't like keep up with Paul on a day-to-day Snapchat filter, right? Like they couldn't do that. It was letters. It was word of mouth. And so they kept their ear to the ground, hoping to hear of news of their spiritual father. And one day, a visitor came in their midst with news of what Paul had happened. And they wanted to know, of course, as his spiritual children, is Paul all right? Is he well? Is he in good health? Does he need money? We know we can give that. We have a history of that. Like any good family, they desired the one well-being of one that was so dear to them. And when they heard that he was in need, 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that they supplied what was needed by Paul. And then they lost touch with him again, around until his third missionary journey. But Paul was without need at that point. He moved on and was imprisoned in Caesarea, and after two years was dispatched in chains to Rome. Even though many years at this point had passed between Paul's first trip to Philippi, they still deeply cared for this man. Like many of you care for your brothers and sisters in the faith who are across oceans, long distances away from us in the mission field, your love for them has not left. In fact, it might have increased as you heard about their deeds and the work that they are doing overseas. Likewise was the Philippians' love for Paul. News of Paul came to them from Rome, and they learned that he was now in prison, and there he lacked, well, everything. Friends had abandoned him. He could not no longer work as a tent maker. Immediately, the Philippians, spurred on by love, made a collection and sent it with Epaphroditus. Let me tell you how many times I had to practice that name all week. Paul was overjoyed and as a result wrote this letter to his spiritual children. Paul had received their financial gift and he wasn't downplaying their gift in the letter. I want you to be clear of that, but tries to show them that they have been used by God to remind him that God works all things together for good. And they were used in God's plan to provide for Paul. That's what he spends a letter doing. I must spend a few moments 
before we continue on the words content. Because I think it gets a really bad rap in our culture depending on how we use it, right? Um, The verse in this section, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, is one of those like bumper sticker verses. You'll find it on mugs. You'll find it on, you know, walls painted somewhere. And it's one of those verses that I hate. Not because I hate scripture, but because what that verse demands of me, right? To be content in every situation, right? And I am regularly, if you know me, not in a state of being content. Maybe you are like that too. Because depending on how the word content is used in the English language, we can find it lacking, right? We can find content longing. We can find content to mean, I'm unsatisfied, but I'm comfortable enough to sit in it. For example, when your mom asks you, how is your grade in math? And you respond with, it's a B, but I'm content, right? You're on a date with their spouse, and your spouse asks you, how's the state of our marriage? Look, I'm not one to give marriage advice, but if you respond with, well, I'm content. I really hope you got a comfortable couch. (laughs) Hey, doctor, I, I know I just heard my test results. I have high blood pressure. I'm a little overweight, but I want to let you know. I'm content with them, right? It gets a bad rep. But content can leave you with the wish for more. But this is now how, not how content is used here. Here it is used as a deep satisfaction resting in joy. Men, it's that moment on your wedding day. The doors open. Your bride is stepping through and you think, I would rather be no other place on the planet. You are so content. Brides, it's when you're walking down that aisle, you see your groom and you're like, ah, yes, I am so content in that station of life. It's that moment after laboring hours in the birthing centers, after the highs and lows of the emotional roller coaster of giving birth and holding that baby in your arms and that, I am content right? Graduate, it's walking across that stage and receiving that diploma and thinking, I never have to take chemistry again. Teenagers, this one was a little hard to try to find one that would speak to you, so this is my attempt. It's when you lose your phone and you search the whole house and you've accused your siblings of hiding it from you. You can hear the ringer, but you cannot find it, right? And then hours go by, and you find it behind a pillow in a room you never were, and you hold it like Gollum holds the ring. Got, this, got the Lord of the Rings reference, and there you are, right? And you think, my precious, all is well. Right? That's content. Content here is shalom. It's peace. Not just in the sense that we lack war or conflict because we are always in the midst of conflict, if you remember from previous weeks, but it's the feeling that all is well because Christ is on the throne. And you might be thinking, great, AJ, uh, that's nice, but all is not well. I'm not content in either sense. My wife is six. 
sick. I'm not content with my children's behavior. The country, well, <laughs> let's just not get started there, right? I don't know what I want to do for the rest of the life, my job, my income, my car, my, my, my. And maybe that's the point, isn't it? That when it's all my stuff, my kids, my job, I lack contentment in abundance and in need and hunger and full. But when it's his, well, there's the secret, isn't it? We can do all things through him who strengthens me. And it is resting in this, that we can find what it means to be content, which leads me to my next point, content to joy. Our being content must have a direction. I think we're prone to think of being content by just sitting somewhere, right? It's kind of this like Eastern philosophy of like I've reached contentment in my, um, you know, spiritual journey reaching nirvana and I've, I've arrived. No, that's not the Christian walk. We're always moving in a direction. We are content does not mean with our station in life or in our marriages or content in our singleness or content in our jobs. This idea of stationary idleness is not what Paul means with being content to joy. His content and the content of the Philippians is moving towards the goal of the gospel in unison, together, as partners. Look how he commends the Philippians in the next section, starting in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into what? A partnership with me giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If you want to go back in the text and notice all the movement words there, it's always moving towards something. And notice the partnership here. So partnership in the Greco-Roman world, much like ours, is all about give and take, right? It's the same in modern day businesses and friendships and other communities. There is a giving and taking in any relationship. And we are content in those relationships when there is proper give and take. And we are discontent in those relationships when it feels very one-sided. It's all give or it's all take. And what I'm referring to here is the concept of the debtor's ethic, which we're going to be spending a little bit of time on, this idea of the debtor's ethic. And this is what I mean. You're at a friend's house for dinner. It's been a great meal, right? Laughter, good food, good company. It's been a great evening. It's a success. It's what we all want, right, at the end of a good meal. And as you're leaving to go to the door, you realize how much they have given up for you to make this meal happen. They bought good food, not just mac and cheese and chicken nuggets, right? They bought good food. They cleaned up the house. They got, you know, three, four kids maybe. And they made sure that you didn't have, they said, don't bring anything, right? And suddenly this overwhelming, like, 
I, I need to do something in return, right? Or I'll be in some sort of a relational debt comes over you and, and you turn to them right before you get to the door. And you said, I've had a great evening. We should do this again. It's a great question, right? We should do this again. Who can turn that down after a great meal? And then you add these words, my place. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. But what is interesting is our heart's desire to immediately go for the tick for tack, right? If someone has sent me a birthday card, I feel indebted to send them a birthday card on their birthday, right? If someone brings me and gives me a Christmas gift on Christmas, and I had no plans of getting a Christmas gift for them, I feel relationally indebted to them as they offer me theirs, and I offer nothing back empty-handed, right? You've just got done with the meal, and you at least have to offer to cook to the host, right, next time, or there would be relational debt. And this is the debtor's ethic and the type of partnership that is expected today and in the Greco-Roman world. For the relationship to be content, there must be an even distribution of give and take, right? How on earth can there be or ever be, give and take in a relationship where one party has literally saved the life of another. In fiction, we see this idea of a life debt tossed around between a hero who saves someone else. It's how they get a sidekick. I mean, that's been happening in literature for thousands of years. How can the Philippians ever return the favor of knowing God to Paul. Are they stuck in this deep chasm of relational debt with Paul that they attempt to follow his every move so they might be able to make it up for someone? I've seen people fling themselves into deep depression on this issue. How will I ever, how will I ever make it up to someone for so-and-so doing um, whatever for me? You fill in the blank, right? How could I ever return the money they gifted us in our time of need? I could never return the meals they made for us in our time of hurt. I could never return the hours of them coming to my recitals. I could never return the free childcare they gifted us during our trips to the hospital. I could never feel content again in our relationship because I always feel indebted. I have seen people fling themselves into deep depression over this. And worse, it's the flip side too. Even worse are people use this to indebt others to relational servitude, right? It's the in-laws. I have good in-laws. I'm not bashing in-laws, but uh, just, right? It's the in-laws who um, bring up what they did for you, hoping that you'll return the favor. It's the boyfriend at the end of the night who wants a kiss because, well, he did pay for the meal. The debtor's ethic is real in relationships. Brothers and sisters, this is not Christianity. And if you've been following Philippians, for, you know for certainty that this is not the predicament that Paul is putting among the Philippians. Because Paul and the Philippians were not just content in joy, they were content to joy. Joy not being an emotional state or an outcome of some self-sacrificing high, but joy as the person of Christ. It was moving in a direction. The glue between the partnership between Paul and the Philippians was not this give and take. 
It was not the balancing of the book of a relationship. The glue of the partnership between Paul and the Philippians was Jesus himself. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The beauty of Christianity is that the debtor's ethic is no more in Christ Jesus. Christ paid the penalty of our sins so we could finally live as creatures he has created us to be. Yes, to him, but this is not some chain. This is freedom. This is why Paul stresses that the gifts he has received from them, he will not credit to some relational account. Instead, he says, he points them to the spiritual rewards they will receive from the one their sacrifice is ultimately to. This is the grace of God. He offers you the gift of salvation, not because you have repaid a debt via a gift, but because you are his. He loves you. He loves you. John Piper has a great analogy I want to unpack for you. This is what it says. Picture salvation as a house that you lived in. It provides you with protection. It is stocked with food and drink that will last forever. It never decays or crumbles. Its windows open onto vistas of glory. God, God built it to you with great cost to himself and his son, and he gave it to you. The purchase agreement, it's called the New Covenant. The terms read, the house shall become and remain yours if you will receive it as a gift and take delight in the Father and the Son as they inhabit the house with you. You shall not profane the house of the Lord by sheltering other gods, though turn your heart away after other treasures. Would it not be foolish to say yes to this agreement and then hire a lawyer to draw up a repayment schedule with monthly payments and hopes of somehow balancing accounts? you would be treating the house no longer as a gift, but a purchase. God would no longer be the free benefactor, and you would be enslaved to a new set of demands that he never dreamed of putting on you. If grace is to be free, which is the very meaning of grace, we cannot view it as something to be repaid. Paul's gift to the Philippians, the gospel, his friendship, his spiritual fathership could not be repaid because it was grace. The Philippians' gift, Paul's need, their partnership, their love for him, could not be repaid because it was grace. That's why Paul mentions the gifts in passing at the very beginning (laughs) and seems to only bring it up here at the end. Because the gift they have both received is the grace of God who unites them to himself. That's why Paul spends four chapters talking about Jesus. When you are content to Jesus, which is... Just a clever way of saying, when you are content to enjoy Jesus, when our relationships with one another are rooted in the work of God and not give and take, then we are finally free to love one another as Christ has loved us. Well, they got me a Christmas present this year. I better get them one next year. No, stop it. Enjoy the gift. Know that they love you dearly enough to think of you and want to shower you with gifts. Stop thinking about, I am in in relational debt to them. How could I ever make it up? I got to give them something bigger next year. Twice the expense of this one to make up for it. Right? This is their vehicle in which they love you and honor the Lord. 
They invited us to dinner. I have to invite them over for dinner and make a meal as equal to theirs so we can be equal. Stop. Enjoy the food. Sleep on a full stomach. Stop stressing over the next thing and enjoy the current thing. Am I saying don't give gifts? Am I saying don't cook meals? To quote Paul, by no means. But give gifts out of what God has called you to, not by some relational capital you hope to build or repay. Because isn't that what God has done when he gave us his son? Paul exhorts his spiritual children to look to Christ in the midst of giving and receiving because he is the source of both. Likewise, God, using the text, exhorts his spiritual children, you, his joy, and his crown. To look to Christ in the midst of giving and receiving because he is the source of both. As we come to the table in a moment, I want you to realize that this too is a gift that can never be repaid. It doesn't exist to remind you of some chain of debt that links you to the Father, but exists to remind you that you are in union with Christ. That the joy you receive in God is not based on some give and take relationship that you have with him. That you somehow have to work for God to be content with God. God has already done the work. He invites you to make his son known by the way you live, work, and gift to others. That the debt has been paid, and as the last verse shows us, we are united to the one who paid it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.